Jessica was one of my customers at the Exxon station I managed. She came in regularly. She was funny. We laughed a lot. This is my daughter, my 15-year-old. Blonde hair and blue eyes. She knew Jessica. I just don't want the media to put a wedge in Batesville, Mississippi. There's enough wedges already. And I'm hoping that people do not let all the drama that's unfolding take over our lives. That was Panola County resident Catherine Black. She ran a local florist and was speaking about the impact of the Jessica Chambers case on the community. I'm your host, Beth Karras, and this is Unspeakable Crime, the killing of Jessica Chambers. I'm a former New York City prosecutor and correspondent for Court TV, now called True TV. For almost two decades, I covered trials across the country. I've been following Jessica's case for a long time, and I'm part of Oxygen's television series of the same name. This podcast follows the case as we examine Jessica's death, the search for her killer, and the trial of the accused. To recap where we left off in Episode 5, prosecutors put together cell phone data, surveillance video, and Quinton's interrogations to support their theory that Quinton and Jessica were together the night she was set on fire. The state's key witness who buttoned up that evidence was Paul Rowlett, an intelligence analyst for the U.S. Department of Justice. Rowlett's analysis synthesized the evidence that, prosecutors say, makes them certain Quinton Tellis is responsible for the tragic death of Jessica Chambers. Here's a portion of Rowlett's testimony he gave while showing video clips to the jury. This is Jessica standing here. That, that light spot underneath her head is her cell phone. And you're going to see that yourself as she places a 529 call. And that's going to be this call where she calls Quentin Tellis. Now, one thing very important is she gets his voicemail during this phone call. She's done getting gas, her lights come on. And you're going to see her pull out of the M&M lot and head south down Highway 51. And three minutes later, does she receive a call? She does. He calls her back. This is the last call he'll make for the next 48 minutes from his phone, and that's the call to Jessica at 534. Now, we know from his final interview that this is the call she makes to essentially pick him up that evening. At this point, based on his statement and the phone records, are Jessica and Quentin tell us together? They are. After Paul Rowlett's testimony, the state advised that it had finished its case. That means it was time for the defense to have its turn to call witnesses. I have been informed that the uh, state wishes now to rest. Is that correct? Yes, sir. That is correct. The state rests. All right. And I've also been, likewise, been informed the defendant does not wish to call any witnesses. Is that correct? Yes, sir, Your Honor. That's correct. <laughs> Mr. Tellis, you wish to waive your right to testify in this trial. I've covered enough trials to know that it's not unusual for there to be no defense witnesses. After all, the burden is on the state to prove the case. The defense has no obligation whatsoever to present evidence. Quinton's attorneys must have felt they raised enough reasonable doubt through cross-examinations, making it unnecessary to call any of their own witnesses. That said, it's common for opposing counsel to call their own experts to counter the prosecution's experts. So it may have helped the jurors to hear from a defense DNA expert regarding whether Quinton's DNA was or was not on Jessica's keys. And the same for a cell phone expert to counter Paul Rowlett's conclusions. 
I had interviewed one of the nation's leading experts in cell phone technology in the past and reached out to him about this case. Ben Levitan has been in the field of cellular communications for over 25 years. He holds 27 patents in cellular technology innovations and has been an expert witness in many telephone and data technology cases over the years. I wanted to know if the cell data in this rural community was as strong as Rowlett and the prosecutors were asserting. Could you really conclude that Jessica and Quentin were in the same place, on top of each other, as jurors had been told in District Attorney Champion's opening statement? Engineer and expert Ben Levitan explains that the RTT data that Rowlett used to place Quinton and Jessica together is not meant to locate a phone. One of the experiments we try in the cell phone industry is called RTT data. Now what RTT data means, it means round trip time. What happens is a cell tower sends a ping out to your phone and your phone turns around and sends it back to the cell tower. Now why do we do that? We're trying to figure out how far away you are from the cell tower. If you're really close to a cell tower and the tower sends you a ping and you send it back, that time's pretty short and we know you're close to the cell tower. But if you're far away, that round trip time is much longer. And then what we do with this is the weakest part of a cell phone system really is the battery inside your phone. If you're close to the cell tower, what we can do is turn the power on your phone down really low so we'll save battery, so you can save battery. And if you're further away, we got to crank up that power a little bit. So since we've got this RTT data in there, we've been experimenting to see if we could use it to kind of determine your location. But basically what we found out, it's just not that accurate. It's not really useful for determining someone's location. It's just not that good. As he has done in many trials across the nation, Levitan analyzed the cell phone data that was entered into evidence in this case. We discussed his analysis. And we're only looking at the cell data here, nothing that Quentin Tellis said to the police afterwards, just what the cell data shows in terms of the location of Jessica and Quentin. So based on what you reviewed, could you ever say, just based on cell tower data, that they were together? No, based on cell phone data, they were not together, period. You could say they were in the same certain square mile area, their phones were. In some, in some times they were, you know, in, in some cases, they may have been in an overlapping area, but for the most part, they were not together, period. Based on cell tower the science, data. The, based on science, based on the cell phone data that we received and we objectively looked at, that's not true. What he said is not true. John Champion said that they weren't in the cell data shows they weren't in Telus's driveway, but they were right next to it. <laughs> I, I looked at this data. I cannot put Quentin <laughs> in an area smaller than 14 square miles. I'm sorry, that's what the data shows. Is this a true or false statement related to the cell tower information? Police are questioning Quentin Tellus 11 months after the crime. And they say to him, we have irrefutable cell tower data that places you with Jessica than, you know, a couple hours before she's killed or set on fire. Is that true that it was irrefutable cell phone data placing the two of them together in Batesville? That's completely false. I was shocked by what Ben Levitan was telling me. Quinton's incriminating admissions that he was with Jessica were based on false information, according to Levitan. 
the cell phone data was indeed refutable evidence. But it is permissible for investigators to lie to suspects in order to get information from them. The problem here, though, is that the investigators didn't think they were lying. They believed the evidence to be true. Prosecutors also claim that Jessica's and Quinton's phones were not active between roughly 6.30 and 7.30 that night, though Jessica did make one call to her mother at 6.48 p.m. This is the hour to hour and a half right before Jessica was set on fire and when, investigators believed, Quinton was trying to have sex with her. More of my interview with Ben Levitan. So, um... Based on your analysis, is it true that Quentin Tellis did not respond to any of these text messages, that he had no outgoing activity on his phone between 655 and 742? No, uh, according to my analysis in this case, he sent out three text messages during that period. I mean, it was very clear cut that he did that. This was startling to me. What? Quinton had used his phone during this time when prosecutors argued he was trying to have sex and was struggling with Jessica? According to Levitan, he was using a social media platform, likely Yahoo Messenger. Two texts, for example, were sent at 6.56 and 7.10 p.m. Quinton had told investigators that he had some spotty cell service inside his mother's home. Levitan explained that in such a case, it's possible calls can't be received or placed, but that it is possible to text since a text uses much less data. So was Quinton with Jessica? Or was he in his house or somewhere else? One more thing I needed Levitan's take on. Were Quinton and Jessica together when Jessica called her mother at 6.48 p.m.? I asked for his analysis based on the cell tower records. And when she makes the call at 6.48 to her mother that she's in a driveway next to the TELUS home, does this cell tower data support that? Absolutely not. She's connected to cell tower 621, which is down in Pope. And that being connected to this area, this cell tower, excludes her from being at Quinton's house at that time. Levitan went on to say that if Jessica had been in her car, in the driveway, just south of the TELUS home, her phone would have hit off the Verizon Tower in Cortland, not Pope, a town south of Cortland. Ben Levitan told me he did the same analysis for me that he would do if he were called to testify. He insists that Jessica and Quinton were not together in the hour or more before Jessica was set on fire. But the jurors did not know what Ben Levitan concluded. And back in the courtroom, it was time for closing arguments. Here are highlights. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. When I stood up here in front of you on Tuesday, I told you what we were going to show in this case. And we have done every single thing that I told you that we were going to do. As we sat here on Tuesday, Quentin Verdell Tellis had a presumption of innocence that maintains or stays with him throughout the course of the trial. Unless and until the state has proven to you beyond a reasonable doubt, not beyond all doubt, but beyond a reasonable doubt that he is guilty of capital murder. 
Oxygen presents a groundbreaking original series, Unspeakable Crime, The Killing of Jessica Chambers. A teenage girl burned alive. From Oscar-nominated and Emmy Award winner Joe Berlinger comes the riveting limited TV series event. White people just saying the black people did it, or black people saying white people did it. A horrific death by fire divides a small town, but is the right man on trial? Eric is not on trial here today. He should be. Unspeakable Crime, The Killing of Jessica Chambers, Saturdays at 7, 6 Central, only on Oxygen, the new network for crime. Over the next hour, Champion summarized his case against Quentin Tawas. He reminded jurors that Jessica was a typical 19-year-old who certainly didn't deserve to die. He also reminded jurors of testimony about Jessica's last few hours. Everything that I'm telling you folks here today is 100% backed up by either his words or the video or the cell phone data. Around 4.30 to 5 o'clock, she left the house, according to her mother, and that was the last time that Lisa ever saw her 19-year-old blonde-haired child alive. Champion spent a significant amount of time in his closing to address the Eric Derrick issue, the names first responders heard Jessica say when asked, who did this to you? What I do know, and I want y'all to think about this for just a minute, because this was said by one of the firefighters, and I think it may have been Daniel Cole, that when they got there, Cole was talking to her. And then he said, when he leaned down and said, who did this to you? He said, it sounded like Derek. Is he turned around and said, hey, did everybody hear that? Did anybody hear that? She said, Eric. So that word was getting out immediately of what she was saying, that you can't put a lot of stock into what she was saying because her ability to communicate was severely effective. We kept an extremely open mind, focusing obviously on all of the Eric's or the Derek's. She had none in her phone. You look at all of her text messages on the day that she died, not a single contact with an Eric or a Derek. There was no Eric or Derek that she was in contact with. And once we finished with what the firefighters had told us, and we had looked at all of the Eric's or the Derek's because it was extremely important to us to look at that. We also looked at everybody that she had been in contact with. One of the people was Quentin Tellis. So he was interviewed four days after, four days after Jessica died three days after she died, actually. It was the seventh she died. He was interviewed on the 10th. He said, yeah, I was with her that morning, but I never saw her after noon. You heard Paul testify that beginning in October of 2015, a decision was made to start looking at the data again. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to conclude the first portion of my closing with right now. 
John Champion hit all the points in a folksy manner, clearly connecting with the jurors. He laid out what he believed the evidence had proven. But he would get another chance to speak to jurors after the defense closings in what is called a rebuttal argument. Next up, lead defense attorney Darla Palmer. Good afternoon. First of all, for months, and really since the minute we started working on Quentin's case, we've been thinking about what in the world happened on that evening to Miss Jessica. It's the state's job to prove that Quentin Tellis committed this crime beyond what's called a reasonable doubt. And reasonable doubt is at every step of the way. I think they talked about putting a puzzle together yesterday. Still broken up. There's no picture here. Now we have Miss Myers, who was her best friend. We heard her talk about that Jessica knew Quentin as Quentin. And on that Saturday as well, there were no problems between Quentin and Jessica as the three of them rode throughout Cortland. Now, Keisha also told us a little bit of something about the fact that Jessica had indeed sold drugs to her knowledge and that she had done that at least every other day for the past six months. Now, here's where I focus. Now, it's ridiculous to try in any way diminish anything that these individuals said. We had Mr. Cole Haley, fire chief. I asked what happened, and she said somebody set her on fire. And when asked who set her on fire, she would say what sounded to be Eric. Next one, Jody Morris. And that is when she told us that Eric set her on fire. Eric, in quotes. Brandy Davis, baby girl, can you tell me your name? Jessica Chambers. Baby girl, who did this to you? She replied, Eric. Daniel Cole, the head guy. Very thorough report. I then asked what happened, and Jessica responded, saying a complete sentence. Eric set me on fire. She stated multiple times, Eric set me on fire. Then he got in the ambulance with her. She said, in response to him asking again, he's close to her. Eric did. Again, Eric who? She said she did not know. Very thorough report. And then the last two who were first responders were law enforcement who were out there. Uh, and it just seems to me that law enforcement completely ignored these two. Brandy Davis, Will Turner from the Cortland Fire Department. I asked, wasn't there a strange man on the scene? One said, yes. He gave me a look. I think he said something like that a chill went through his body or something like that. This is a person that they thought enough to put in their report that this guy is suspicious and we need to put this down. And as a matter of fact, we need to get his tag number. And that's what they did. And what did Daniel Cole tell you? Okay, well, we gave it to law enforcement. Now, the tag information, I would venture to say that that's probably Eric, but we don't know. So we know that, yes, indeed, she was, she was injured, and she died as a result of, of her burns. But when um, 
talking with, I believe it was the, uh, the autopsy doctor, there was an ind indication that there was no blunt force trauma or anything like that. And that uh, nothing that would say fractures or smothering of her. Now, finally, we have Mr. Rowlett, who I admire, quite frankly. As far as the reliability of these cell phone records, don't forget this now, because what he said is that the Cortland, the scene of where everything happened, does not have a cell phone tower, and therefore obtaining data to determine a person's location is just not good. So we don't know at some point where Jessica was, and we don't know at some point where Quentin was. And just kind of in closing here for me, for my portion, the clips from the video footage from the store at M&M's reveal nothing other than cars coming out of a driveway. I asked that kind of continuously. Can you tell what kind of car is it? Can you tell who's getting out of the car? These are assumptions. This is what's called reasonable doubt. Circumstantial evidence, not guilty. Eric is not on trial today, but ladies and gentlemen, he should be. Thank you. The defense split its summations between the co-counsels. After Darla Palmer, Alton Peterson wrapped it up for the defense team. He took a moment to address the prosecution's assertion that Quinton was desperate to have sex with Jessica. Now, the prosecution would have you believe that Mr. Tellis constantly hounded this young lady for sex. That is simply not the case. When you go back to that jury room, look at the evidence yourself. Who was her first contact that morning? It was Quintellis. And what did she do? She sent him a text that says, you're up? And he responded, yes. Ladies and gentlemen, this investigation was flawed from the very beginning. Defense attorney Alton Peterson spent most of his closing argument focusing on what he considered flaws in the investigation, including the crime scene not being preserved and processed properly. He also challenged the way Jessica's car keys were handled. Tyler Mills or someone at the Sheriff's Department gets a call from a gentleman by the name of Jerry Lee King. Mr. King was the guy who was walking this baby girl and he found these keys, or so he says, and he picks them up out of the ditch, and what does he do? He gives them to his one-year-old baby to play with. And he went back home, and Miss Mary Tyner, she calls her uh, Tyler Mills. She calls him on his cell phone. You recall that? She had a cell phone because she was his confidential informant. We got Jessica Chambers keys. Well, how did they know they were Jessica Chambers? Because it had a little green tag on it that says Ben Auto and Diesel Repair. And then what, the, what happened with the keys at that point? They took those keys, and he didn't take a picture of them at the house where he found them or where Mr. King presented them to him. He took those keys, and they went back down the road and put them in the grass and took pictures of them based upon what? Solely on the word of Jerry Lee King. As Alton Peterson was wrapping up his closing, he was looking at a photo of Jessica Chambers and made a gaffe that sent gasps through the courtroom. This is Erica Chambers. We have seen her. This is a young lady. This was her doing happier times. 
Erica Chambers knew her killer. And on the night that she was burned, she repeatedly, first responder after first responder after first responder after law enforcement after law enforcement said to anyone who listened, Eric did this to me. Eric set me on fire. E-R-I-C. Eric. She didn't say Quentin. If Erica Chambers had told 10 people that Quentin did this to her, I wouldn't be standing here before you. Ladies and gentlemen, we believe that after you go back into that jury room and after you apply some simple common sense and after you look at the evidence that's been presented to you over this long week of testimony, we believe that you will find that the killer's name was Eric, E-R-I-C, E-R-I-C. It ain't complicated. And based upon that, we would ask that you find Mr. Tellus not guilty of capital murder. Thank you for your time. Hey there, I'm John. And I'm Darren. And this is Martinis and Murder. A weekly podcast that rehashes crimes, investigates new information, and ponders theories you may have never even considered. And we do it all while drinking. Because frankly, that's how most things in life should be done, right? Of course. From murders you've seen on the news to remote crimes in areas of the world you've never even heard of. We're the place for mysterious murders and creepy crimes. So hit that subscribe button to make sure you get new episodes downloaded every week. Sit back, relax, and get ready for Martinis and Murder. Ooh, this is good, man. Alton Peterson misspoke and called Jessica Erica at least three times. It was clearly an error, but John Champion didn't let it slide. But first of all, I'm going to start by saying that this is Jessica Chambers. This is not Erica Chambers. This is Jessica Chambers. Living, breathing, human being on the morning, afternoon, and early evening of December the 6th. They wanted to argue about the inadequacies of the investigation. Well, if you look at the pictures of Jessica from the autopsy and what the doctor says she had no burning on her bottom on part of her back the lower part of her legs and the bottom of her feet what does that tell you it tells you she was sitting down when she was burned you heard the doctors talk about the splatter marks on her body You've got the photographs that you can look at. They wanted to try and discredit Paul by saying, well, how could he be accurate if he doesn't have all of the information? So the, the argument, and that's the only argument they've got to try and discredit Paul, because Paul's information that he gave to y'all is huge. It's huge because it implicates Quentin Tellus. Champion redirected the defense's attempts to remind jurors of Jessica's dying declaration. 
And if you'll remember in my first closing, I said that Jessica, because two of them testified that she said, I'm hirsty. I'm hirsty. Y'all remember that? If you get back there, put the top of your tongue, put the tongue at the top of your mouth. She wasn't able to say tease. So what if she was trying to say tell us? Error. Error. Because you can look at her tongue and absolutely tell it's swollen. You can hear the doctor's testimony about the horrible condition that she was in. So maybe she wasn't trying to say, Eric, maybe she was trying to say, tell us. But the, they, they said she couldn't pronounce her T's because I'm hirsty, hirsty, yumbers. Champion wrapped up his closing with the prosecution's theory of what happened to Jessica the night she was set on fire. The state's theory of this case is that something happened in that car at his residence or next to his residence because he wasn't in the driveway like he told the police. And something happened inside that car to where he rendered her unconscious. He says she left at 7 o'clock. He then says that he didn't see Jessica again. But we know at 7.26, you see the car come out. And immediately, Jessica phoned Schist to the crime scene area. Four minutes. At 7.42, his phone becomes active. And I think one of the most important things to think about is at the exact same time, their phones are dead. And what I mean dead, there is absolutely no activity on his phone. There's absolutely no activity on her phone. And he tells us in that interview that she left at 7 o'clock. There is absolutely no proof of her phone moving until 7.26. At 7.30, Paul testified she is on the scene where she was burned. At 7.42, Tellus calls Jessica and doesn't get an answer. He immediately sends her a text that says, Sorry, babe, my gal's coming tonight. I can't get together with you. No response. This is an alibi text. This is a text to try and throw the police off of the trail. And then we know at 8.04 Jessica's phone goes dead, and then we know that he is at 8.26. We also know that he changed clothes immediately after getting back. 31 minutes later, he's completely changed clothes. Is it possible he had gas on him? And then you see him in the store where he tells the police, I heard about Jessica when I went in the store. And then what does he do? He erases everything from his phone. He never calls to check on her. He never calls to find out what's going on. 
he erases Jessica Chambers from his life. You know, Jessica Chambers was full of tomorrows. She had every right to wake up on the morning of December the 7th to live her life. What are the possibilities that in a matter of four minutes that Jessica gets with somebody else when we know for a fact that she was with Quentin? And all he did the entire time was to distance himself away from Jessica. Why do you do that? I submit to you that he did it because he is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Thank you. The case was now in the jury's hands. The waiting began. Quentin's sisters have been there to support him. I'm just ready for it to be over with. No, let my brother go because he didn't do this. I'm not stressed about it because I know that God got us and this is his battle, not ours. For Jessica's father and aunt, the case was open and shut. They needed this to be over. There's no doubt in my mind, like, you know, yeah. Paul showed me what he did to my daughter, you know, who did it to my daughter. There's no doubt in my mind, you know, where they see the same thing I seen, you know. I don't know. I can't say what they're going to do, you know, but if they don't, something wrong. While the jury deliberated, Quentin's attorneys reflected on the past week. I feel like that we did put on a great case. Now, we're at the end of this, but at the end of the day, I'm going home, and Quentin is looking at these charges, and I want to make sure that I've done everything that I can to do what he hired us to do. District Attorney John Champion also commented on the trial. I've never been more satisfied with the way a case went in, the way a case was presented to the jury. Everyone was on edge waiting for a verdict. After more than eight hours of deliberations over two days, we were informed the jury had reached a verdict. We all rushed back into the courtroom. Remain seated, courtroom will come to order. I have been informed that the uh, jury has reached a verdict in this case. This has been a very emotional time for families and loved ones in this case. I'm going to ask you to dignify these court proceedings accordingly. All right, if you bring the jury in, please. I just need to note that all 12 jurors agree on that verdict. Yes, sir, we did. All right. Would you hand the verdict, please, to the clerk? We all didn't agree on it. Sir? You said we all agreed on that verdict. We did. The verdict has to be unanimous. So all 12 did not agree on the verdict? Is that what you're telling me, sir? Yeah, I didn't agree he was there. Ladies and gentlemen, I previously read you the jury instructions. It says that all 12 jurors must agree on the verdict in order to find the defendant guilty as charged. If you return a verdict, you'll have to be unanimous. You understand that? Yes, sir. All right. I'm going to return you to your jury room for further deliberations. I had never seen a jury say they reached a verdict, then have one of the jurors blurt out that they hadn't. Some major misunderstanding about what constituted a verdict was afoot. All 12 needed to agree. After a half hour, we were called back again. 
after the judge received another jury note that they had reached a verdict. Once again, I've been informed that the jury has reached a verdict. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Uh, and I need to ask you if that, if that verdict represents the considered judgment of all 12 jurors. In other words, is it unanimous? Yes, Your Honor. Will the clerk please read the verdict? We, the jury, find the defendant, Quentin Verdale Tellis, not guilty of capital murder. Then the prosecution asked for the jury to be polled. That means that one by one, jurors were asked whether that was indeed their verdict. What followed was surprising, to say the least. All right. It's been requested the jury be polled. I'm going to ask each one of you if that is your verdict. Is not guilty your verdict? Yes. Yes. All right. I voted guilty. 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 Not guilty. Guilty. Not guilty. Obviously, there's a, a split between you all uh, as to uh, the verdict in this case. Despite having told the judge that they reached a unanimous verdict, clearly it wasn't. The judge sent them back once again. This time, he explained that all 12 had to agree on a guilty verdict or not guilty, and that if they can't all agree on the same answer, if they're split, then say so in a note. And after almost two more hours, they returned once more to the courtroom. Courtroom, come to order. Bring the jury in, please. Clerk will read the verdict. We, the jury, cannot unanimously make a verdict of guilty or not guilty for the defendant, Quentin Verdell Tellis. The trial was over and the jury was deadlocked. I wasn't surprised. The split among jurors reflected the sentiment I heard around the community and at the courthouse. People were divided about whether the right man was on trial. Even for many who thought Quentin probably did it, they believed there just wasn't enough evidence to prove it. Though it wasn't an acquittal for Quentin Tellis's family, it was still a victory. Well, I don't know what happened, but I feel good about it. And boy, as long as he wasn't found guilty, I feel fine about it. But we still want them to find justice killers. That's right, we want justice for just as well. You know, my heart going out to them, and all we have going out to them. Do you want to say a little thing about the boy or something? Well, I really, you know, really appreciate them. I think they did a great, wonderful job. For the parents of Jessica Chambers, her father Ben and mother Lisa, there was frustration. This was doomed from day one, you know, just, they messed it up. I ought to sue the hell out of them what I ought to do for putting me through this. I believe I could get a guilty verdict out of it. It was very painful to your heart. It was like they ripped it out again. I was disgusted, I was angry, I was just, I couldn't believe it. I thought the verdict was gonna be guilty. While this trial was over, the case of the state of Mississippi versus Quentin Verdell Tellis was not. One year later, the accused would face a jury once again in a retrial for the murder of Jessica Chambers. Next time on Unspeakable Crime, the killing of Jessica Chambers, a new trial filled with new witnesses and new strategies. Unspeakable Crime, the killing of Jessica Chambers is produced by Wilshire Studios for Oxygen Media. I'm your host, Beth Karras.
From Oxygen, the new network for crime, comes an original television series about the horrific story of a teenage former cheerleader burned alive in rural Mississippi and the man accused of the crime. Who is Jessica Chambers and why would anyone want her dead? Is the right man on trial or is he the fall guy? With more questions than answers, this is the case that captured national headlines, took over social media, and left this small town shattered. With exclusive interviews, explosive discoveries, and an unforgettable trial, this is a must-see TV event. Unspeakable Crime, The Killing of Jessica Chambers, Saturday at 7, only on Oxygen.